Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we give coaches and consultants practical ideas for taking you to the next level in your business and in your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who've walked in your shoes and offer real-world experience that you can apply to your own journey. Welcome back to another episode of the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I am so delighted today to welcome as my guest, Jody Flynn. Jody, welcome to the program. Meredith, thank you for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast and there's a part of me that wants to pinch myself like, I'm here, I'm here being interviewed by Meredith Bell. This is exciting. <laughs> well, Jody, you and I met, it's been a, gosh, four or five years ago now, mm-hmm. I think online. I think I heard you being interviewed on a podcast and immediately wanted to connect with you because I uh, really identified with your message. And uh, just to give the audience a little bit of background, Jody is the founder of Women Taking the Lead, and she also has a podcast called Women Taking the Lead. And I have been honored to be a guest on your show, Jody, and that was such a fun interview. Um, Jody is also a certified professional coach through IPEC and has done just a fabulous job in her business coaching type A women because they, uh, she's one herself and um, she especially enjoys working with women in mid-level management positions. And we'll talk a little bit later about how she came to identify that specific market. Uh, but Jody has been a coach herself. She's worked with coaches and other business owners in addition to now moving into women in the corporate world. And she just has such wisdom to share. I can't wait for us to get into our conversation, Jody. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you to do, though, is tell us a little bit about your journey, because you started off in the corporate world yourself before you became an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, to go way back, I was a psychology major and I thought I was going to be doing counseling, you know, some psychotherapy and imagine myself in a very cushy living room type setting, you know, chatting with people all day and it didn't work out that way. And I graduated in the mid nineties and had not heard of coaching. What was available to me was being a social worker, but that wasn't where I wanted to focus my energy, my time. It's not what drew me to psychology and what I loved about it. I loved human potential, our behavior, the way our mind works, how we develop, and and how to fulfill our greatest potential. So those were the things that excited me. And so I pivoted and I took an entry-level position in a mutual fund operations company, not where I thought I was going to end up, but it turned out to be an environment that I thrived in because it's very structured. And I didn't know a lot about mutual funds. I was obviously not a business major, but I enjoyed (laughs) the work and and learning and achieving. And I quickly rose to the ranks. I, I was promoted five times within six years. I ended up moving to Maine, became the assistant vice president of corporate quality, just because I I am an overachiever. I was always taught, you know, to have a good work ethic, that if your name was going on something, make sure that it's the best that you could do at the time you were doing it. And that really guided me and that helped me to thrive. And then I hit a point where 
it wasn't as challenging anymore, right? That that allure of the next thing was gone because then I saw the lifestyle and what was required of people who were at the vice president's level. And that didn't appeal to me because one of my core values is freedom. And they all seem to be really tied to the job and those positions. And I started to feel like, gosh, like, you know, with corporate quality, a lot of my job was my, my, for myself and my team was to bring out the best in everybody. And even though they might not have been in their dream jobs, it was like, how can we work together as a team? How can we do our best work? And that enlivened me. But then the question of, could I be doing more of this out in the world? You know, not just at this company. Can I spread this around and do more of it with more people and more scenarios? Like that bug bit me. And then I started meeting coaches and I was like, I think this is it. It was like, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, I was ready and I was eager for it. And in 2010 was when I made the transition from my corporate job into being in business full-time as a coach. And it's been a journey since then, but an enlivening one. I'm sure. And one of the things, because I guess of your interest in psychology and you've worked so much as a coach with other coaches and um, entrepreneurs, it seems like you've, uh, in our earlier conversations, you've really identified some areas that kind of hold these folks back. And even people in the corporate world too, this idea of setting boundaries Mm -hmm. and falling into people pleasing. And I think that's one of the things that really drew you to working with women because women seem to have more of a challenge with the boundary part and the people pleasing part. Talk a little bit about what you've seen and how you help guide them Mm -hmm. to set boundaries and be less of a people pleaser. Yes, that is one of the things, because I I do work with women and men, and I have an assessment tool that will identify these characteristics, like what is causing stress in their life. And the assessment will point to somebody who's overly invested in taking care of other people, as opposed to somebody who's like, no, I don't worry about that. You know, like everyone's fine. They're, they're good. You know, that sort of thing. And it, it was funny that when I started working with men more so, I would read their reports and be like, wow, that, that indication of really taking care of the people, it's not here. How do I have this conversation with this person about what stresses them? Don't get me wrong. Men definitely have their own, you know, bag of tricks that they have to deal with, you know, with it, with their conditioning. But with women, it is primary, almost like hands down. I rarely see a report where a woman doesn't indicate some form of going into overdrive with people pleasing. And this can, it's one of those things where it can benefit them early in their career, right? I want to take care of people. I want to say yes. You know, if my boss asks who can do this, I want, I want to, you know, show them that I'm a good worker. I don't want to disappoint them. I want to do a good job. That's great early on. 
But when you're at a point in your career where you need to be doing a lot of delegating and coordinating and project management, you cannot be the person saying, yes, I'll do that, or I'll just do that because I know how to do it and it's easier for me to do that. It would take so long to train somebody to do this that it's just easier for me to do it and I hate saying no and da 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 da, da. And that's where women fall into a trap and they get stuck at a certain point in their career where they can't advance because they're not developing those skills of boundary setting and delegation and mentoring and developing the next person to Mm. take over their role. And so a couple of things can happen. They'll either, you know, um, start to decline right? They'll, they'll become unhappy in their work. It might impact their health or hopefully they see the signs and they seek help. And so what are some of the things, if you could give like one or two tips that might be useful for somebody listening who has struggled with this themselves, what's one thing they might do to move forward in that area? Well, it all comes back to mindset because somebody who's doing this behavior of, you know, I need to take care of other people. I need to do it because I know how to do it. I'm the, you know, I'll do it better than everybody else will do it. It's a mindset of I'm better than other people, right? So that's typically what's at the heart of this. Um, It can be other things, but what I found in my clients is because they are type A, there's this like high achiever. I need to show that I'm really good and I'm better at this than other people. And it's not malicious and it's not highly conscious in their behavior, but it's there. Like I can do it better than everyone else. So I'll just, I'll just do it and I'll get it done really quick. So when that shows up and I'm having that conversation with my client, we identify this is the mindset that is causing their people pleasing. We'll take a look at that. You know, is it true that other people aren't as qualified as you are or or are not capable of being trained Mm -hmm. to take on this task? And who are you preventing from having an opportunity by doing this task yourself, right? That's a big one because we think, oh my gosh, what would happen to these people if I weren't here? If I weren't here to take care of everybody, what would happen? And what I'll ask them is, are you sure you're not preventing somebody else from having an opportunity to show what they're capable of, right? Because I remember early on in my career, I was that eager, go-getting, high achiever. And so when my boss said, look, I don't have time to do this report anymore. Who wants to take it on? Like my hand was shooting into the air. Like me, I'll take it. I, Because I wanted to prove that I was capable of taking on more responsibility. And so taking on that mindset that probably the people around you are looking for opportunities to show that they can do the work. And you know what happens, Meredith, when my client, like the next meeting I have with my client, they're like, that meeting went really well. They were really excited. They even came up with some other ideas that we could put into the work so that I get freed up, you know, and I can do other things. It's an amazing thing. So it's changing that mindset of like, I'm the one to there are many here who can do this. It's just a matter of training and opportunity. Yeah, such an important point. I think asking ourselves questions is, is really a key and that willingness to open up. And we could go down this for a full half hour just focusing on 
what's behind somebody feeling like I'm the one that has to do this. Cause I think a lot of it is really driven by fear mm -hmm. and, uh, potentially looking bad if somebody else doesn't do it as well as I do, but I'm the one that's ultimately responsible. So there's a lot of junk, yeah. as you say, that's going on in our heads. And I think you're so right that mindset, how are we looking at the situation? What mm -hmm. thoughts or beliefs am I holding about these people Yes, that may not be accurate? And it, it, points to identity and how we think of ourselves you know it could be a couple of things like i'm the one or it could be i'm not the type of person whose name is attached to substandard work so if it's substandard while we're in the training process that's going to be painful mm -hmm. at first right mm -hmm. and you know so again what i say to my clients is okay you're gonna we're gonna work through delegating this and then your job is to not take it back <laughs> right? Yeah. That if something happens and something goes wrong and it doesn't work out well, that's a training opportunity, not a failure, mm -hmm. you know? And so keep it in their court and, and like ask those questions. What worked? What didn't work? What went wrong? How can, you know, is there something missing? Is there more training? Is there questions we haven't asked? So that can be a process, but it's so worth it. It's so what? So worth it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. The relief they have to feel after they actually do it. There's that tension that builds ahead of time. What if, what if? Mm -hmm. And then once yeah. they do it, hey, the world didn't end. <laughs> yes. And it's a process. It's like a child learning to walk. They're not going to do it perfectly the first couple of times they try, but they get it. And then you don't have to carry them or hold their hand anymore. They can walk on their own. That's such a great um, point. And I think it's so critical for any of us thinking of people parenting and doing things for their children that rob the child of the ability to learn how to do things. So what you're really getting at there is a universal principle that can be applied anytime we start feeling overwhelmed, mm -hmm. like we have too much to do and it's all on me. <laughs> and it, it goes back to our thoughts about yes. that. Yes. Um, that, well, you know, one of the things too, that's been interesting that I've seen over the years we've known each other is kind of a shift in your focus mm -hmm. of, and I think why I want to go to in this direction for a little bit is I, because I have heard so many consultants and coaches who struggle with where to focus, mm -hmm. you know, initially there's this desire to be available to everybody because everybody needs what I've got. But the reality is the more we can more clearly define who our ideal client is, the better and easier I think it is to attract them and serve them most effectively. So talk a little bit about where you had been working and then where you have evolved to mm -hmm. the last few years. Yeah. So initially in my um, early years, you know, I was, at first I was like, I'm just going to be a life coach. <laughs> and I'm going to teach people self-care and balance and life purpose. And it was a beautiful, beautiful dream at that point. And what ended up happening was a couple of the women in my networking group approached me and said, because I was focusing, I was going to focus primarily on caregivers, even though I was not a caregiver at the time. Like I just saw the need and my heart went out to caregivers and I was like, I'm going to help them. And, but caregivers weren't hiring me because I didn't have any credibility 
as a caregiver. They, you know, kind of, they loved my free workshops, but they were like, you just don't understand what it's like. So when you want me to set boundaries and take care of myself, I'm going to have to tell you, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. So it was really difficult to serve um, people who were caregivers, but a couple of women in my networking group approached me and each said something very similar along the lines of, I'm not a caregiver, but I need some help in my business. Can you help me? And what that turned into was essentially being like the personal coach to the business owner. Like I wouldn't say I'm a traditional business coach. Like I'm not doing the business model, the, the P, I'm not looking at P and L's and reports and all of that and deciding hiring and firing and you know the what I call like the bones of the business mm -hmm. I'm more at the, the the soul of the business or like working with the leader of the business on their leadership so that they can lead the business and all of a sudden I was like yeah, this makes perfect sense how do you manage yourself as a business owner that's that's a great place to be and then in 2015, when I launched my podcast, Women Taking the Lead, that was actually a side project in my business because I was, was working with women and men, equally marketing to women and men. It was just to business owners generically, but I felt this calling to work with women because of the special needs they typically have that men don't have. Like we talked about the people pleasing, women also suffer more from perfectionism, you know, and and not taking credit for or advocating for themselves and, you know, saying sorry to, about things that they didn't do, right? Apologizing for things they didn't do. And these things, these traits and these things that women deal with can hold them back in their business and also in their careers. And so I just felt this um, calling to work with women. It was like a, a, almost a spiritual mission for me, but I couldn't seem to like change my own business to focus on that. And every time I did, people would be like, oh, that's a bad idea. You're going to lose half the population. So think of the clients you have now, cut them in half. That's what you'll end up with. And so like that scared me a little bit. And whenever I said like, all right, I'm just marketing to women, like three men would hire me. And I'd be like, oh, God, you know, like, what am I doing? Like, is this a good idea? So I started the podcast just as a way to have an outlet for this passion and this calling I had. And then all of a sudden, like I was attracting women. Um, and I would say it was a year after I started my podcast. I always do a review of who are my favorite clients, you know, in terms of not in terms of like they're better people overall, but who's getting the best results? Who do I feel enlivened working with? Who is appreciative of, you know, the work that I do, the services I'm providing? There's usually a synergy that goes on with these clients and I'll label them favorite clients. Um, like, who are these women? And when I identified all of them and I took a look, like, what do they all have in common? It was personality traits and it was personality traits that I also had. So they were attracted to me. And, I, and several of the women who found me from my podcast were saying things along the lines of, I've been listening to your podcast and I think you get me because most of the people think I'm crazy. You know, but I, from what you've said on your podcast, I think you get me. 
And when I looked at the personality traits uh, that they all had in common, they're the personality traits that we typically identify as type A personality traits. So focus on a goal, can't stand wasting time. Like there's perfectionistic tendencies, high standards, impatience with people, you know, when they're not working with them, they're perceived as working against them, driven, time oriented, you know, so I was like, okay, these are my people. I'm going to start marketing to them. And all of a sudden I was attracting more clients at that point. And then each year I do this review. All right, what kind of work am I attracting right now? Who are my quote unquote favorite clients? And then I started getting more work within corporations to lead workshops you know, to help develop leaders, um, to help them develop coaching skills, listening skills, conflict management, resolution along those lines. And in the next iteration, I also, you know, was starting to get hired by these corporations who had previously hired me to do workshops. They started reaching out to me to say, we have two or three people who need some coaching. We're vetting coaches. Are you willing to come in and have a conversation? And what was so funny is like the first three companies that reached out to me, I got all three gigs because in over between the three companies, there were six individuals all had type A tendencies, which was just fantastic because I could speak to, and I think part of it is my connections at these companies were also listening to my podcast. So they were also able to identify, oh, this issue that Jody's talking about on her podcast, that's one of the things or a couple of the things that are going on with these individuals. And so basically what these individuals had in common was they were at that mid-level management place. So they were anywhere from manager to vice president who they were people of potential or high talent employees. These were employees who these companies really wanted to keep. They really wanted to retain them. You know, they, they saw a future for these individuals, but they were doing things that were getting in their own way and would trip them up and actually prevent opportunities if they didn't get a handle on them. And it was exactly what we were talking about earlier, Meredith. It was like not setting boundaries, not speaking up for themselves, people pleasing and not wanting to make somebody else feel bad, taking on too much work because they didn't have the ability to delegate or they didn't want to overwhelm their teams and having super high standards for themselves. And for some of them, it had been going on for so long that they were exhausted and they were starting to snap at people in meetings, which is just a no-no for somebody who wants to be promoted someday. And so, you know, with that iteration, I started really looking at, okay, it's not just type A women. It's also these women. Interestingly enough, around that same time, I was attracting micro business owners. So these were women who had consulting firms or they were insurance agency owners or lawyers who had small teams. And what was interesting was the dynamics of their job was very similar to these women in middle management, right? They had smaller teams. They had a lot of the same issues where, you know, they were trying to focus on their teams and the goals, but they also had to meet the needs of other people, other vendors. They had people they were essentially reporting to and 
if you're a micro business owner, your, your bosses are your customers, you know, so they were reporting to their customers and, you know, and I was just like, okay, okay. Like here I am now. It's not just type A people. It's not just workshops and corporations. Now I am focusing on the micro business owner and that those women in middle management. And I've even come to since our last conversation honed it a little more is, and I, and I tend to steer away a little bit from using the label type A too much because sometimes these women are like, I'm not type A. Like it's a defensive thing. Like I'm not that person. Like so many people misunderstand me already. I don't need to start calling myself type A and then look like an ogre. Right. Because that's the perception that if you're type A, you you step on the backs of other people to achieve your goals and you're so ambitious, you don't care about other people, which is cannot be further from the truth. These people might have a, a hard exterior because they're so focused on the goal and they're so busy, but their heart is huge. And the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because they care so passionately. So now I've honed my niche to be, I help rising women to achieve the top levels in their careers and their industries. Cause that's what all of these women have in common, common, regardless of if they are the business owner or they're in middle management, they're striving, they want to be there and, and they see themselves at the top as well. Oh, I love that distinction. And you're mm-hmm. right. I think that it can be dangerous too to label people mm-hmm. and reinforce these labels when we're all so much more than yes. what that one phrase or word would indicate. So I really like the way the language you're using to describe that focus. I think yeah. that's really smart. And I think it would be helpful for our listeners too, when they think about who am I serving or who do I want to serve, to think in terms of those ter- in, in uh, terms of the qualities Um, what is it those people possess? What kinds of positions are they in now? What do they aspire to be? Because I think your statement captures those elements. Yes. And you know, what's really interesting, Meredith, I'll also offer this up. You know, if anyone's having a hard time really honing in on what is my niche, you know, the process of looking at who you're attracting is very helpful. But what's really funny is getting to this place, I've never gotten, ever been far away from, these people are who I used to be, even if it was like a day or two ago, right? Like I had a coach who said, you only need to be 10% further along the road than your clients. You do not have to be light years ahead of them. In fact, sometimes the best person to help somebody is someone who's just a little bit ahead of them because you still understand what it was like to be in that position. And you kind of, you, you know, the way you've gone the way you can show the way and you're not so far removed that you can't relate to what they're going through. I like to think of that as you're sort of being their guide and not a guru. Yes. You're relatable. Yes. They know that you can relate to them and they can relate to you because you talk in terms that connect with them on an emotional level and an identification level because you've walked in their shoes. 
Yes. It's, it's very much a partnership. I hate to say in the trenches, but you, to some extent you do, you immerse yourself sure. in their world while staying objective. Like at no point do you lose, you know, contact with the fact that you're an objective third party, but in order to help them, you really have to be in their world and understand where they're coming from because that's where the questions come from. Well, absolutely. And I think that that is, um, a critical component. You were mentioning doing these workshops too, mm -hmm. and those sort of help you get in the door yes. inside an organization, right? So talk a little bit about how you actually acquire the opportunity to do these workshops. What kinds of programs do you conduct and how does that then lead to additional business? I'll say a lot of my work came from when I was subcontracting for training and development companies, organizational development companies. So putting myself out there to say, you know, if you're at, you know, and what happened with this one particular company, they were at a growth point where they were starting to double book, right? And they went, oops. We don't have enough people to cover all the work we're going into. So if you know a company that's experiencing a lot of growth, you can say, you can use me, you know, and I can help deliver some of your programs. I met a lot of people, you know, through, you know, that organization who then came back to me years later, you know, cause that company did like cultural overhauls, right? They weren't doing the more like scalpel. Targeted. Yeah. Like yeah, knit work that I was doing um, within organizations. So finding companies that, you know, there's that fit where you're not exactly doing, like you have the same mission, but you're going about it in slightly different ways or your focus is a little different and being supportive of them and also networking events. Like I tapped into people who, in my, who were in my network from previous jobs who were now working for some of the companies that I wanted to offer my services to. And they helped, you know, introduce me to people who were either in HR or in the training and development companies. And again, I also made it clear to these companies because, and this is the way my business is set up. I'm like, look, I don't want to take over training and development and be responsible for all of that. I'm supplemental, right? So I can provide these one-off workshops that could help supplement what you already have going on. And I can also provide coaching for people who are in that mid-level management. And I remember talking with one woman, she was the, a senior vice president and the director of HR for a pretty big company. She's like, mid-level management, you just got my attention right there. Talk about like your niche really helping you. Cause she was like, Oh, the person who introduced us, I, I, you know, have a great relationship with, so I'm willing to take your phone call. But just so you know, we have a really robust training and development program. Cause they're a huge company. Of course they do. She's like, but you know, give me your spiel. And, and I'm totally willing to listen. So I was like a little intimidated by the way the conversation started, but I was like, okay, I'm game. She's open. I will, I'll tell her what I do and we'll see where this goes. And at the end of my spiel, she was like, mid-level managers right there. You got me. She's like, we have a lot of support for senior leaders and we have report, a lot of support for people coming into the company but we do not have a lot of support for people who are at that mid-level. It's kind of like sink or swim at that level. If you don't sink, you may get promoted to the top. 
but you may end up petering out right where you are. And she's like, that happens to, you know, some people who in retrospect we see could have advanced if they'd gotten more support. So uh, again, niching can really help find those opportunities where you can provide products and services that you might not have thought you'd get an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's such a great um, lesson and insight, I think, for people thinking creatively about where are the opportunities for me. And when you're having conversations with folks, there are certain things that you can say or questions you can ask that will really be compelling for them. And like you said, get their, get their attention mm-hmm. so that they realize, oh, she does have something that we could use. I think yes. that's, I, I really like what you've done there because now you've got that example that you can actually take to other organizations and say, you know, I've worked with this other company where this was a hole or a gap that they had. I'm just curious if you experienced the same thing or do you have all of your development for your leaders from supervisor up to executives covered? Yeah. You know, and what kind of results are you getting? So yes. that and, is great. And I have to say, Meredith, I, you know, I, I could be wrong. This is, my perspective, my perception of things, but we really are in a magical time where businesses are realizing they, they really need to invest in their people. You know, I mean, yes, technology and software is very important and vital and is the way of the future. But if they're not investing in their people, if they're not developing their people, the software won't make a difference, Mm -hmm. right? Because you still need that human touch, Mm-hmm. you know, within companies to inspire and motivate people to do their best. And that, and that's leadership. Absolutely. And there are some organizations, as we've talked before, that invest, but they don't do the follow-up and the coaching and supporting mm-hmm. of people. So there's still no real impact. Yeah. They're not um, sustaining. Yeah. And yeah. I know we're getting close to the end. We could talk all afternoon. <laughs> I'd be curious um, because I know that you've been very involved with BNI as mm-hmm. a networking group. And one of the things I remember you telling me before, you may not even remember saying this, but that you focused more on forming a few really solid relationships rather than trying to, you know, bring the whole world into your network. Talk a little bit about how you've gone about building those smaller numbers of relationships and what benefit that's had for you taking that approach. Yes. So BNI has a couple of philosophies. The one most people are familiar with is giver's gain, which I know you're a fan of and Bob Berg and the go-giver. I mean, he, he's spoken for BNI and, you know, is, is very involved in, in BNI. Um, the other philosophy is that networking isn't about casting your net wide per se. It's about developing deep, long-term relationships that you sustain over time. So your best referrals will come from people who, you know, know not just know, like, and trust you. Like, like we use those words that like, how do I want to say this? Like, those words have meaning. We, we overuse them sometimes and that can water it down. But when somebody really knows you, 
and really knows you. you and believes in you. That was believes. a phrase that just came to mind. Yes. They are like, they're your fans. They are your advocates. They believe in you. Like they want to introduce you to everybody, you know, that they know. And they have no problem introducing you. They're like, you don't know this person. You are missing out. You must be introduced to this person. And when I get a referral from someone in my B&I group, the person who's referred to me will usually say, they went on and on about you. They just, they love you. I, you know, and I'm usually able to reciprocate because I'll ask the person in my B&I group, tell me about this person before I meet with them. You know, give me some, some reference about your relationship with this person. So that when you're really building those strong connections, strong, and not just connections, relationships, you know, referring to each other gets easier and easier. And oftentimes we have new members join and some of them have just started their business. They might not have the biggest or strongest networks. And they're very intimidated by the fact that, you know, there is an expectation that you are passing referrals. And I said, I'll say to them, don't even worry about that. For the first six months to a year, just meet with everyone for coffee, for lunch, for breakfast, for drinks, like what, however you want to do it, what time of day works for you, get together with the members, get to know them as people first, then as business owners, and then really get to understand their products and services. And I, and I will usually say to them, this will probably take you a year. So don't feel like it's going to happen overnight. Start with a few people and go from there. I guarantee you, if you do it that way and your focus is on getting to know people, within six months, you'll be passing referrals and it won't be hard. It'll just be like right there because this is the thing. We're training our brains to be on the lookout for mm -hmm. people who are great referrals, for the people that we really know, we really like, really trust, and that we are believers in, that we automatically are like, oh, you've got to meet my friend. You know, I just had that happen the other day. Somebody texted me saying, Hey, I need an IT person. This person's got to be fun and friendly. And I was instantly, no problem. I've got the guy for you. Right. So I connected them. They met. I got a text back from my friend saying, we just met. He's amazing. I love him. We're going to be friends for life. Later that day, I got an email from my BNI member, met with this person. She was great. It was so much fun. We knew a lot of people in common. Like that's the beauty yeah, of perfect. like networking to build relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's so important that give um, not with the expectation or, or holding a, um, you know, just saying, I'm going to give you this, but you got to do this for me. Oh yeah. It's not having those kind of expectations. It's just yeah. the willingness to, to give and contribute and just knowing things come full circle. They, they do. And they always will. And I've had interactions with people who had that attitude and it, it's a turnoff. It's hard to trust somebody who's like, I'll only give to you if you'll give back. It's like, what are we building the foundation of our relationship on? So, you know, coming from that place of like, I'm happy to serve yeah. and trusting, you yeah. know, that what you put out will come back to you and um, probably tenfold. Yes, I agree. Well, that is such a great note to end on Jody, because you are such a giver and it's always been such a a pleasure to get to talk to you because you have so much 
that you are interested in giving to others. So thank you so much for being a guest on my show today. Oh, thank you, Meredith. Always a joy to talk to you. And I hope everyone got some value out of this. I am sure they did with the various points that you touched on. I know that you've resonated with a number of people who are listening. Thank you. Thank you, Meredith. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com to learn how our tools can increase your impact with clients and expand your business. And while you're there, grab our free ebook, The Five Secrets to Getting Better at Anything. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell. Make it a great day.